On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. So we are chatting today with Margarita Montemore. She is the author of Asleep From Day and Una Out of Order, a USA Today bestseller and Good Morning America book club pick. After receiving a BFA in creative writing from Emerson College, she worked for over a decade in publishing and social media before deciding to focus on her writing dream full time. Born in Soviet Ukraine and raised in Brooklyn, she currently lives in New Jersey with her husband and dog. Welcome to Pop Fiction, Margarita. Thank you so much for having me. I was saying it to you earlier, but I love everything that you're doing and how you're celebrating female characters across books and movies and shows. And I feel so connected to your entire mission statement. So I'm very happy to be part of this. We love to hear that. Yes, we're so excited. So Una Out of Order is now out in paperback. So we wanted to start by having you tell our listeners a little bit about the book. It starts out in 1982 in Brooklyn. Una is about to turn 19, right on the cusp of New Year's Eve. Her birthday is January 1st. And she is at this crossroads in her life facing two really exciting opportunities, but she can only pursue one. One is more academic, one is more creative and musical. And at the stroke of midnight, she passes out. And when she wakes up, it's now 2015. 31 years later, she is in her 51-year-old body, but with her memories of her 18-year-old, now 19-year-old self. And she's in a strange house and comes to realize that every year she's going to leap or time travel into her own body at a different point in her own adulthood. So she basically lives her life out of order. And I, I use the time travel as a way to explore aging, identity, things like family, friendships, romantic relationships. What does it mean to feel your age? What does it mean to act your age? what's expected of us at the different points of our life and how prepared or unprepared are we to face those challenges. So I want to talk about that theme a bit, but I also want to say in the pandemic, I feel like everyone feels like we're living our lives out of order, right? There's just Absolutely. of the past year has felt like that no matter what. But I do love your themes about age. And I have always been a proponent of saying, you know, it's just a number and it's how you feel and how you act. But Una really is still a young woman on the inside and changing on the outside. So there's always this tension between how she feels inside in a more literal way than it is for all of us that feel 20, but it might be older yeah. than that. So I wanted to know what inspired you to write that story? It was that exact feeling of I was in my late 30s, still having moments of this disconnect of how is that possible? You know, if I'd meet friends that I hadn't seen since college, and like, oh my god, we all went to school together, like, it's been almost 20 years. That's crazy to me. And it was feeling just some days I woke up feeling like I was still 19 on the inside. And other days I'd wake up feeling like I'm 100. And everybody kind of feels out of time, you know, 
I've always joked about how I felt like I was born 10 years too late because I'm so much more into like 80s pop culture than I am. I came of age in the 90s and always felt kind of like, oh, I was robbed of the really fun cool decade. Um, So for me, it was a way to play around with those ideas and also to kind of indulge my own nostalgia of I don't have an actual time machine, but here's a way I can revisit the 80s and the 90s or just revisit earlier parts of adulthood. You know, even though she's a fictional character, it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, how can I live vicariously through her? I wasn't a club kid, but I'll make her a club kid. Or I only spent a little bit of time in Asia, but I'll have her take a year to travel Asia. So it was a fun way to not just live vicariously, but also kind of make peace with my own decisions, you know, I ha- my own decisions, mm-hmm. my own kind of where I am in my life and my age and that notion of we're supposed to have certain goals in place and certain accomplishments in place by certain by ages times, yeah. versus just respecting your timeline and the fact that things happen at different rates for different people. So for me, it really, it was very therapeutic. Yeah. I'm like, you're really speaking to me. (laughs) I still struggle with that. That's the story of my life that, yeah, no matter how much I achieve, I always move the goalposts. And I feel like so many women I talk to are the same way. And we always feel like we're not doing enough. How are all these other people accomplishing all these other things when I can like barely keep a grasp on (laughs) this thing or this thing, or, you know, I feel like it's very much a problem that a lot of women deal with. Yes. Well, speaking of women, let's talk about Una. So on Pop Fiction Women, as you know, we talk about complicated women, which to us just means real three-dimensional human beings with contradictions and conflict. And our tagline for the show is we're complicated. We love to talk about women in fiction who are flawed, who don't always make good choices, but who we relate to nonetheless. And Una certainly qualifies because of her circumstances. She's constantly reinventing herself, which I love. So you keep turning the pages wondering who you're going to get next. Is it going to be the philanthropist or the club girl or the woman married to a man she's never met? And while it's not that extreme for most of us, we don't wake up each year as different people. We do discuss that we feel some Sometimes, like we are different versions of ourselves all the time from year to year, from day to day. And that's what makes us complicated women. So we'd love to hear more about your development of Una, who she is, what inspired her, and maybe any challenges you faced when writing her. I love what you said about we're all different versions. And I do think that when I was looking back on where I was in my life and thinking like the different roles that I've played in terms of my career, in terms of academics, in terms of my romantic and social connections with people. And even sometimes I feel like you switch between who you are from you work in an office versus afterwards going out with friends versus going on a date and taking that to its extreme and also looking at it not only in a person's life, but across the decades in New York, I just found it a really fun challenge. So a big part of this book was exploring the notion of imposter syndrome, definitely something that I've struggled with and really who hasn't, but especially when you experience some kind of change in your life or whether it's a new job or a new relationship and that feeling of like, oh my gosh, how long is it going to be before people find 
find out I don't belong here or they think I'm smarter or cooler or better than I am. And for Una, being in these situations where she's expected to know certain people or things or familiar in a setting and she's winging it, I felt like that was the extreme way to explore that. Also, another aspect of relationships, how you can know somebody for years and years and years. And then one day you learn something about them and it's like they're a stranger to you or not even sometimes you'll just wake up and be like, who are you? Maybe for no reason. So that feeling of, well, how about I have her come to and she actually is married to a stranger. And you know, that notion of we keep evolving as people and we grow in these different directions. And sometimes we evolve into different people that sometimes it's harder to recognize. So there were a lot of different ways. And because I didn't want it to be heavy handed, I just thought about these scenarios of that fish out of water and how can I have fun with this? But also for anybody that's looking to kind of go deeper into this or relate on a deeper level, that substance is there for them too, even while she's having all these wild adventures and making questionable decisions. Since we're on the topic of complicated women, Una is not the only complicated woman in your book. Her mother, Madeline, is also a complicated woman. She's a constant throughout, which is reassuring in this kind of structure. But also we've started talking more recently about mommy issues. We feel like daddy <laughs> issues get a lot of airtime, but the mother-daughter relationship is a complicated and fraught one, even in the best of circumstances. Mm. So we wanted to hear more about why you made Madeline such an important character in Una's life and what that dynamic meant. I think you really nailed it when you said that, you know, Madeline's a constant. When you don't know where or when you're going to be from year to year, there's only so much that's going to carry you through those uncertain times. And so for me, you know, it made sense that she needs to have at least one person who's going to be there and to have her mother there. It's just the most natural decision, probably because for me, if I think of one person who's been there for me my whole life, it's been my mother. And we were very close. You know, she also had me when she was young. She was only 20. So growing up, she was very much a friend to me, a confidant. And also we definitely had our complications and our ups and downs and those periods of time where being a teenager and in my 20s where I'm more assertive or think I know more than she does. And I thought that was also a fun way to explore the mother-daughter relationship where in some cases Una is going to be older than her mother and possibly wise than her mother. When I was growing up, my mom, she used to joke with me whenever I'd become like a smarty pants in Russian, there's an expression, oh, the egg is trying to teach the chicken. I thought that would be an interesting way to look at all of that. But also, you know, Madeline, she really kind of came to life for me in a way that was almost like this ethereal, like, I don't know where she came from. Like, you know, certainly characteristics were inspired by my own mother, but she just had such a vivacious personality that I felt like she would be a good balance because she struggles with kind of the wild side of her and the practical side of her. So having a mother who is so colorful and larger than life, I thought would be an interesting way to show this struggle that in some cases for Una, rebelling means being a little bit more serious <laughs> or conservative. And That was me too. That was my mother-daughter relationship with my mom. And they are very progressive and hippie. And it was my ultimate rebellion was becoming a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> 
so crazy. It's almost like sometimes kids are tempted to overcorrect in the yeah. other direction. But at the same time, you know, Una is creative and she does have this rebellious streak that she she does need to explore and enjoy and certain mistakes that she needs to make. Just accept the fact that the parts of her that are similar to her mother are there and are actually some of the best parts of her yeah. too. I like their relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of timeless threads throughout the novel, these constants, music is a big one. We love music here at Pop Fiction Women. Even though we cover books, movies, and TV shows, we never miss a chance to have an episode on or a discussion about music. We really view songwriters as storytellers. So in Una Out of Order, music plays this really important role. So tell us about your own love of music and why you wanted to weave music so prominently throughout the novel. For me growing up, music was such a big part of who I was and my identity. And I felt like, especially in my teens and 20s, I always had this soundtrack to my life through the music that I listened to, to the point where I made friends based on the music interests we had in common and the concerts we'd go to and the clubs we'd go to. So it felt so essential to me. And I think partly it was my parents were both musicians. So I grew up with so much music in the house. My mother was a pianist and a singer. And back in Russia, she was a conductor. My father was an opera singer and they did a lot of community like concerts and charity events. So they were always singing, playing. We'd go to parties. My parents didn't believe in babysitters. So it would just be like (laughs) huge groups of people. And they would be the ones late into the night at the piano, singing, entertaining everybody. So for me, it was just such an essential part of growing up anyway, that when I developed my own interest in music, like you said, it's storytelling, it's emotional, it's so evocative. And for Una, especially when the book begins, when she's 18, about to turn 19, that was the period of my life where I felt like I was so interested in writing, but music was such a touchstone for me. And I felt like this makes perfect sense for it to be a constant for her as well, because there is something so timeless about music. And and at the same time, it's like this time capsule that sometimes you hear a song and it puts you immediately into a specific place or situation or period in your life. So it's a great way for me to explore that. And I just had to be careful because I have very strong opinions on the music that I like (laughs) and what I'm into. And I know that some of it is not as mainstream. So I wanted to make sure that the language of music that I use throughout the book could still appeal to people, even if they don't know who Kate Bush is, that they could still understand and appreciate what her songs mean to Una and to the narrative. Also, if you don't know who Kate Bush is, rectify that immediately. Thank you. (laughs) I I got an email the other week from someone who read the book who is a big fan of Tori Amos and said she only knew like one Kate Bush song, but that my book made her interested in like discovering more of Kate Bush's music. And I was like, oh, I feel like my job is done. Well, Corinne and I have known each other since college and we did not know until doing this podcast that we each are people who have a theme song, our own personal theme songs, and they change throughout our life. But I thought I was just a complete weirdo that I've like went around in different periods of my life being like, this is my theme song now. And Corinne's like, oh yeah, I've always had a theme song. I'm like, of course. 
course you have. Yeah. Oh my God. Can I ask what your theme songs are? I've had a few, but Corinne, you've had one since you were little. I was going to say my very first one was the theme song to Sesame Street. I remember going into pre-K like sunny days as if it was like <laughs> I was like parting the clouds and like coming through in this like it's going to be a good day. Mine in college, which went on actually through into law school was The Warrior by Scandals shooting at the walls of party. My theme song that started, I would say, from college is Atomic by Blondie. That's the song I would play when I was like getting ready to go out and like the world is my runway. Kate and I just did an episode about poetry, which was Mm -hmm. very out of our comfort zone. But Kate, you had mentioned somebody said that poetry is like a main line to your emotions. That's Mm -hmm. how I feel about music. I mean, I love to read a book and see myself in a character and a show and, and a movie, but music is like instant. It's like, I am you right now. I got your whole story. I know everything that's going on. I've been in your situation. And so it's just a main line to accessing those emotions. And even the way that I write, I look at it from a cinematic approach. Like I think of setting the scene and what is the soundtrack to the scene that's happening here. They say for writers, one of the best tips is write with all of the senses. Don't just describe what people are seeing, but hearing and all of smelling, tasting, tactile details. So for me, I try to use that to enhance the scene. And I even like put a Spotify playlist together for this book because each section is named after a song. In some cases, even with Kenzie and Una when they're at a Suzanne Vega concert, even having the context there, I wanted to make sure that even if you've never heard a Suzanne Vega song, like that you still can get a feeling of that longing and melancholy and the emotions that the music creates, whether or not it inspires you to go and listen to those artists. So besides music, I mean, you're hitting on all of our big themes. Another (laughs) one is fate versus free will. And obviously, Una's fate seems to be sealed, and she doesn't get to decide what year she jumps into. But the choices that Una makes while she's there do have some effect on how she will live that year. We've heard you say that Una cements her fate by trying to subvert it, which is (laughs) one of my favorite words. So tell me more about that theme and how you balance that line between fate and free will and how you feel about those forces? Part of it was in service to the story, I had to set certain parameters. So I knew that because I have such a complicated timeline, I needed to have guardrails. So in my case, the guardrails are we can't explore alternate realities because we're already in a different year. We're covering so many different time periods in one person's life that if we're also going to look at alternate lives, like it's just going to get so confusing. So I had to sort of set these ground rules of like, okay, there are certain things that Una is going to just, yes, there are certain parts of her life that are fixed that seem to be faded, but even within that, she is going to have free will and just not realize that her free will is actually shaping and sometimes trying to avoid certain situations is bringing her closer to the life that she is going to face in later years. It also brought to mind a Russian expression that goes, if it's not meant to be yours, it won't be yours no matter how much you chase after it. And if it is meant to be yours, it will be yours no matter how much you try to run away from it. I love that because it's saying do what you want, make your own decisions, but also just be okay with what life 
brings you because there's only so much that you can affect and embrace the chaos of that and the powerlessness of that while exerting your agency where you can. My dad used to say to me all the time, John Lennon quote, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Yes. I love that quote. I love the one that you said too, because I love the back end of it. We always hear if it's meant to be, it'll be. But the idea that even if you try to run away from it, it will still be. Yeah. Which is leading nicely into my next question, which doesn't always have a good lead in. But while we're on the topic of fate and how much of our lives are predetermined, I did want to touch on a big interest of ours over here, which is astrology. So Corinne and I, I think we mentioned are both lawyers and have analytical right side brain strengths that convince us oftentimes that we're in control of our lives. But we're also writers. And we found through so many of the author interviews that authors tend to be more guided by their intuitive or woo-woo side. So the way we <laughs> connect to our woo-woo side is through astrology and through mm-hmm. my careful research, which would be stalking your Instagram. I think your birthday is December 22nd. So that makes you a Capricorn, but on the cusp of Sagittarius. Sagittarius. So we wanted to see if you relate to your sign. You know, what's funny is I, I grew up being much more interested in astrology and oh, my mom, she's kind of psychic and she would read my cards, but not tarot cards. She read playing cards and she would talk about predictions her grandmother made. Like basically, Basically, the women, the female line in our family has this extra something or other. And I always felt like, am I the generation that skipped it? Or was I so (laughs) desperate to have extra sensory powers that I was not letting them in? I wasn't letting myself be intuitive enough. So I definitely was interested in all of that growing up. And I was frustrated about being a Capricorn because Capricorns, I felt like were so boring and practical. (laughs) And I think the most frustrating thing I ever read about Capricorns is that they're the type of people that will buy you a roll of stamps for your birthday. I think I read that when I was a little kid and it just planted this seed in me of I have to get people good presents for the rest of my oh, life. And like, so I make sure that it's like, of course, there's the practical side of me. And I think I've grown to embrace that. But being on the cusp of Sagittarius, yeah. I always felt like the well, Sagittarians are like yeah. the wild childs and the creative side. And so I felt like all of my writing and the creativity, that all comes from being right on the cusp of Sagittarius. And then the part of me that does like to put down roots and have a safety net and work hard and be careful with money. Gosh, when I played Monopoly as a kid, I had like an emergency savings fund that I would like put away a certain percentage of all of my earnings in this jewelry box. So like I was classic Capricorn, even like as I love being the banker, again, avoiding certain characteristics as I got older. You can't run from it. And also it's so much better to accept who you are and embrace those negative traits, but realize how interesting it can make the positive traits. I am laughing so hard that I'm like tearing up with recognition because I'm Capricorn moon, which is what generally runs your internal world. And I'm an Aries sun. So 
I have that conflict similar to your cusp. I have the conflict of my outer life versus my inner life. And those are a big conflict, Aries and Capricorn. But it's a very similar to being on the cusp of Sagittarius. Capricorn yes. is the yeah. fire sign versus the very structured, very practical Capricorn. I feel your pain and my God, I loved being the banker. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Leo over here is just, I'm Leo inside, outside, oh, like wow. through, and through. I joke with authors. I'm like, I even look like a Leo, like the, the lion <laughs> totally. hair. I really embrace that over here. But that's amazing. I love that your mom was into it too and your maternal oh, side. Sure. You know, Corinne has a little, you're calling it something a little extra. She calls it witchy. witchy. She's a little witchy. It's my mom's side. I love that you also made Una a Capricorn, right? She has to be January 1st. You know what? I don't think I even consciously, but that makes sense. I know. Well, it does make sense for New Year's Eve. You're right. Structurally. Yeah. Also kind of subconsciously, you know, in the same way that my mother, her name is Ola, it starts with an O, and how I flipped the mother-daughter initials by uh, Madeline yeah. and Una instead yeah. of Margarita and Ola. I love it when the back of my brain just creates these little synchronicities. Wasn't it Julie Buxbaum that talked about that? The writer's subconscious. She writes books and then two years later, whatever, when she's talking about it, she totally understands what she was writing about. But it was in her subconscious. She's like, oh my God, no wonder. That explains everything. But I didn't know it when I was doing it. Oh, for sure. I felt that way writing this book. Like I did not at all say to myself, I'm going to write a book about the importance of living in the moment and appreciating where you are in your life. I was discovering that at the same time that Una was, you know, the book came out a year ago in hardcover. And during the pandemic, when people were saying like, oh, this book is uplifting, and it helped me live in the moment. And when things were feeling chaotic for me, I'd have to remind myself, all right, take a page out of Una's book. You wrote this. They like, you know, take those lessons to heart. Don't just let other people reap whatever insights they get from it. There's a reason that people are connecting it. And there's a reason that it came through you. Absolutely. It's something that I needed to learn and still need to learn and yes. am still learning. So we want to talk a little bit about your writing process. Kate talked about Carrie Matheson on Homeland. Mm -hmm. I totally see it as Arabella on I May Destroy You. How did you manage? How did you figure out the order of this book? I still sometimes can't really understand it. I'm like, how did I do this? Because this should have made me end up in a padded room. The fact that <laughs> I didn't outline meticulously, the fact that I didn't have like a murder board with thumbtacks and red string and photographs connecting everything. It was very intuitive. I did sketch out just some thoughts on what are scenarios. Okay, like she has to start one leap where she's married to a stranger or like the first leap has to be the fish out of water. So it needs to have like a really big gap in time and age and that we really feel taken out of her environment and I knew that and then I really went with the flow of it like because whenever I try to outline as soon as I actually sit down and write the story the characters are like mm, you know what we're not going to do this thing we're going to go do this other thing instead so I once spent a full month outlining a book like a full book and then when I sat down to write it chapter two and the story was like, like I spent a lot researching. It was going to be a haunted house story. Mm -hmm. There was no ghosts. 
There, the, the, <laughs> it was not a haunted house at all. It turned out to be a completely different book. So, so I learned my lesson and I write down ideas as they come and try to like sketch out a loose structure just so I, I'm not totally fumbling in the dark. And then it's very intuitive. And as I was writing it, that's when I was also keeping track. So I had two timelines. I had the chronological timeline of like, here's every year from the time she was born to the latest year that she lives. Here are like the main things that happen. Any global events or specific events that are gonna be important or potentially important at a glance I could see here's how the real life is playing out and then I had a second timeline that was Una's chronology so using those two and they were just like word documents and just going back and forth in Scrivener and being able to look at them and see okay here's what she's lived through here's what she knows who she knows for some reason that made it easier to keep track of but I will say revising was quite the task because I ended up rewriting the last third of the book mm -hmm. and I mean this book went through easily two dozen revisions so that's where being a pantser and writing intuitively can be challenging because yes. especially a small note that was very useful and I'm very glad that I took it to heart but like having little constants added throughout the book like the leather jacket I had to go through every single leap in the right. book and make sure like how does the leather jacket look here what role does it play here and fortunately my editor was very sensitive to that and understood if you pull one thread the whole thing can unravel so whatever was added or taken away I mean I had whole leaps that I ended up removing yeah. and adding new ones so I feel like it starts with intuition and then you know my Capricorn brain kicks yes, in, has to kick in and, yes. and then it's like all right so like you know you write all of the little pieces of Lego and now we are constructing something and now we see what what we're building here my next one I want to know your answer to this so I want to talk about your path to publication. I mean, I know you had other careers first in publishing and social media, and I've heard you talk about some advice for aspiring mm -hmm. authors. And basically, it was never give up and yeah. to get used to people saying no. And you mentioned over 200 agents turned down the story before you get a yes. And as aspiring writers ourselves, we appreciate that advice, but it's very hard, right? Yeah. Because yeah. we just don't know sometimes whether the no's you're getting mm -hmm. about a particular thing or really knows really put that in the drawer good right. try but that's not meant to see the light of day versus just revise again or keep persevering and mm -hmm. and that line or even of, just you it's know. not the right fit for that one particular agent or oh what? yeah it's so subjective yeah, totally but if you got 200 you might go oh okay this might be more yeah but, it might be 300 but it, if I... but it didn't belong in the drawer look at it i mean it's amazing and i also heard you say you know being a writer's like signing up to be a professional lottery winner and i really feel that so I don't know. Do you just keep playing? You just keep buying the lottery tickets? I mean, how do you know? <laughs> well, for a writer, you know, one thing that maybe I haven't stressed as much as I should is the revising. The, it's not a matter of like, if you get rejected, just the story keeps sending it out. When you're lucky enough to get feedback on your work, even if it's not an R&R, &R, a revise and resubmit, even if it's just a single sentence that conveys something that is constructive to your story, and especially something you may have heard more than once then I think for sure revisit it and definitely have people read your work, whether they're other writers, whether they're just readers whose opinions 
you trust or I think it's good to have like two different categories of readers the beta readers who are just they love to read they love a good story they might not be able to give you very specific feedback in terms of why the structure isn't working or this or that but they can give you that top line reactions that are very valuable in a broader sense and then get the readers who are in the same boat you are or you know like I was a book coach or somebody who knows story structure who can give you the very specific details instead of like middle is slow but give you actionable feedback of like there's too much internalizing here in the middle or the conflict here needs to be tighter or I feel like when you get good criticism of course sometimes it's overwhelming and you just feel like oh my god it's impossible but when it's useful you feel motivated and energized and like okay now I know I have a plan for how to make this story better so if you feel like there's any room in making your story better then no don't give up unless you just have another story that you feel is stronger or it's just time to work on something new or you feel like I've honed this as much as I can and now I'll try my hand at something else for the variety just to keep my creativity going it's hard to know what that line is because for me I do think that a lot of it was luck yes I did keep revising and when I did get the bits of feedback sometimes I took them sometimes I didn't I also had agents say that this should be a YA story I had agents say that this should be more of like a romance that it should focus on a love story and I knew that's not what I wanted for the book but then when I got feedback of making it more coherent and less fragmented so that it did even though her life was disjointed the narrative still had an arc to it and still felt more complete that was the feedback that I internalized and let marinate for months Mm -hmm. but then realized like okay this is how I can do it I think that it's not a matter of go 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 it's also keep honing it and not just the book itself or the story itself but the pitch I have written and rewritten queries the pitch and the opening pages of your work I probably spend more time on the opening chapter of my book than revising the rest of it combined I've rewritten and rewritten and rewritten the opening chapters of everything I've ever written I toil over it because I'm the type of reader that will start reading a book and sometimes the first page doesn't grab me and I set it aside I've done that with huge best-selling acclaimed there's a book I'm not going to say what it is but I am dying to read it but twice or three times I've picked it up now I can't get past Mm -hmm. the first page and I know I just need to power through and I will but like that's how I look at it if people do that with my book I need to make sure that they are hooked from that first paragraph even that's how I am as a reader too and a lot of the the authors we talked to on here talk about the importance of being a reader as a writer and Mm -hmm. that's the most valuable piece in locking it all in I would even add to that not necessarily even just reading reading for sure it's important but for me my writing is inspired by a lot of different modes of storytelling when people ask it's funny when people ask like my favorite authors my favorite writers include a lot of screenwriters because just some of the writing that's being done for television and and film is just phenomenal and genius and especially the way that people's voices and characters are captured through dialogue and it inspires me to approach storytelling through all these different ways or like podcasts and I actually don't listen to scripted podcasts I listen to non-fiction podcasts and that's almost even more impressive that here's how you tell these real stories in a way that's so captivating that they are even more compelling than something that's fictional so immerse yourself in story in every type of media that 
that attracts you or even that might be new to you because you never know what that way in might be, that thing yeah. that sparks the next idea. That's the magic, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. But you're leading into our next questions. Kate, you're going to talk about... Yeah, the universe. The universe is thriving as far as I can tell. <laughs> You've hinted at a sequel, so we definitely want to hear about that. But we also saw the recent news about an adaptation in the works at Amazon Studios from Spyglass Media Group and uh, screenwriter Alice Bell is attached to adapt and executive produce. So that has to be so thrilling. So congratulations. Thank you. I'd love to hear about that and how involved you'll be in the adaptation. And again, also if this sequel is, is for real. Okay. So as far as the adaptation goes, I have been very, very fortunate. Some authors, some authors don't like to be involved in mm -hmm. adapting their work. They just want to write more books. That's cool. Some authors aren't invited to the table. They just hand over their work and then it's like, okay, we'll see you. Like you do what you need to do and we'll see it when it's on screen. In my case, I made it very clear from the beginning that I am interested in being as involved as you want me to be and as involved as is useful. So if you want me to be a part of it, if I can contribute in any way, I am here and it's been fantastic. I have had the best experience. It's kind of surreal because with the way things go, it'll be quiet, 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 quiet. And then let's set up a call, flurry of activity, exciting things. Let's talk about these different writers. Let's read these scripts. And then it'll just be like quiet, 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 quiet. So I'm just used to during the lulls, I don't obsess about it. I don't think about it. Like every time that there's a period of that activity, it is such a joy to be part of. So I did get to be involved in discussing potential writers. And then when Alice was brought on, I read her work and I've seen some of her work, The Beautiful Life, by the way, it's on Hulu, this mini series. It's a modern adaptation of Anna Karenina. When I was watching it, I was just like, oh my gosh, like she's so perfect to take Una and to do something so that bring it to life and make it its own project. So I love that I, I've had a chance to talk to her. I've seen her outline for the pilot. And if I am needed or wanted to be involved in any additional capacity. I'm here. If not, it's like, wow, well, thank you for letting me get that peek. And all of the Hollywood stereotypes that you think of, or like for me, especially <laughs> like all the shows and movies of what it's like, it has not been that everybody's been so genuine and smart and just really interesting and great to work with. And whatever happens from here, I do trust we're in good hands. I think Amazon, the quality of their work has been phenomenal. Like when I was writing this book, I was immediately thinking I would love to see it adapted for the screen and definitely a show, not a movie because it could be very episodic. And Amazon was always the top, top, top choice. So seeing this happen is great. And then as far as sequels go, depending on what happens with the show, if it is produced and does well enough to continue on for seasons, that's also another area where I could potentially be part of it because I do have notes. I have a good five or six potential leaps sketched out. Even though I don't outline, I do have like three quarters of a sequel loosely, loosely outlined. 
definitely the second book, a lot more of it would be set in the 80s. Yeah, there are things that I do feel like her story has potential to continue. I'm not done with her yet. And I even started tinkering like with an opening chapter. But at the same time, I just knew that I need to write something completely different. And oh, and then I have like an a different Una adjacent story. So like everything I write, I like to have Easter eggs to other books. And I know like, I love it when other authors yes. do this. I know David Mitchell, I think the author of Cloud Atlas, he does that a lot. Even with Una, there's a character in that book that is in my first self-published novel. So I always will have little Easter eggs and there is something that I want to do. I don't know how or when or if I'll do it, but like another thing with the second book, we definitely would need to have more of Sin. I just loved her as a character Mm -hmm. and even thought about, is there a way she can reappear later in the first book? But she'd have to make an appearance in the second book. And I've thought about a potential... Una adjacent story that would involve her. But even like what I'm working on now, there's sort of in my mind, a greater not mythology, but a greater sort of spider web of Mm -hmm, connections that there are intersections that'll appear here and there. Well, you've already answered our last question a little bit, but if you have more to add, the question is, what are you loving right now? Books, shows, Mm. people that you're kind of done a rabbit hole with. And remind me, it's Alice Bell on Hulu, This Beautiful Life. The Beautiful Lie. So what am I loving right now? It's funny because I was thinking about there's some authors and characters and novels. I would love for the two of you to potentially explore in future episodes. One of my favorite (laughs) authors that nobody ever talks about is Lionel Shriver. And even her biggest book, We Need to Talk About Kevin. I feel like the conversation around it was so much about the teen violence and that side of it. And whereas it's such a fascinating, dark look at motherhood and feminine identity. She wrote this sliding doors type novel, The Post-Birthday World, that explores alternate realities. And even that, it's so serious and in-depth and interesting. And her characters, nobody ever would accuse her characters of being like too friendly or likable or they're (laughs) always prickly and complicated and so real. She herself as an author has like come under a certain amount of criticism, but the ideas that she explores in her books and the female characters, the complexity that she writes about so much for that is another fantastic book of hers. So she's one I always try to put a spotlight on because I feel like she's one of the most talented writers around today that very few people talk about. She wrote something about gender that blew my mind. Kate and I have talked about it a lot. Britt Marling wrote an essay in the New York Times, but it was Shriver's essay that first had me thinking of this idea of gender and then something completely separate as masculine and feminine and how you can be one gender and be masculine or vice versa and how both of those things are separate from biology in that Mm -hmm. way. But have you heard of the book The Push? I want to read that book. Yeah, it is like high on my TBR because when I read the description, I was like, this sounds like everything I loved about We Need to Talk About Kevin. Exactly. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the parallels that people are making. And I've just recently started it. And I can definitely say it goes really dark about motherhood. And you're right. That's actually what I didn't love about the Kevin book was that it ended up being so focused on the violence and the teenage boys. But the push seems to solve for a lot of that. I just started it, but it goes dark about how you feel about motherhood and how complex. 
complicated that all is. So Oh, I'm definitely going to read that. And I love that you mentioned Britt Marling too. She is my spirit animal. I fantasize about one day, if I won the lottery, I think I would literally put millions of dollars to getting the OA back on the air because it's one of the greatest stories for me. It has touched on so many things that I am fascinated by and it's so masterful and ambitious and insane. I'm so impressed with everything that she does. Even before the OA, I love the movies that she wrote and co-wrote. I freaking worship at the altar of Britt Marling. I think she's fantastic. Another book that's coming out in a couple of months that I love that also features two phenomenal female characters is called The Darkest Flower. And it's by Kristen B. Wright. She's an author I've known for a while. And her story too, as an author, she's written, oh my gosh, like 10 or 12 books. She's the most tenacious author that I know. And this book, it's a domestic thriller. And the characters, they're both so unapologetic. One, unapologetic for using her feminine wiles and being manipulative and she knows who she is. And then the other for being, and they're both smart, but the other one's a lawyer and just, they are not going to just be phony, nice versions of themselves. They are going to show you who they are. And this story was so satisfying, like reading this book, not just because I've known the writer for a few years and just seeing how she just completely came into her own. And I love the fact she wrote this book as the antithesis to all of the like, these characters need to be more likable, more likable. And this was just like, I'm writing this for myself. I don't care what anybody thinks of the characters. And that authenticity comes through. It just feels like such a real uncompromised vision. So yes, The Darkest Flower is one for you to have on your radar. Yeah, that definitely sounds like perfect fodder for us. Oh, yeah. Yes. And and she's a great one to talk to also. I'm going to be cheering a lot for this. And then another book that is going to be coming out also pretty soon, it's called The Other Me. I've noticed this emerging trend and I am so here for it. It's fiction written by women that has a speculative element to it. Sometimes it is something like a sliding doors or, you know, like Una where it's time travel, but it's it's always still rooted very, very much in identity and relationships and real people. Like it's not about saving the world or preventing cataclysmic thing from happening. It's very much about used as a vehicle for people to explore identity. And this book, The Other Me, it does exactly that. The author is Sarah, I don't know how to pronounce her middle name, Zacharich, J-E-N-G. It's so fantastic. Oh, it's coming out in August by Berkeley. And the tagline is two lives, the one you wanted, the one that wanted you. Like it's a woman Mm. who is living a certain life. And then she literally walks through a doorway into another version of her life where she's married and and she's like, what is going on? She's this artist in Chicago. It's her 29th birthday. And then she starts not feeling so well. She opens the door to the bathroom and it's a party that her husband threw for her birthday. And now she's living somewhere else. And oh, It's so great. And it's got such a great hook, but the way that it also explores the choices that women make about career and family and marriage, relationships, things like that. It's used as a vehicle to go so much deeper in this dark, suspenseful, fantastic story. You know, I love that you said that. I have just heard The Echo Wife that just came out. I haven't read it yet, but you're right. I am so here for this big hook because that one has a little bit of sci-fi in it, but 
it mm-hmm. is very grounded in reality and it's about identity and it's about I heard the author in conversation with Gillian Flynn last week and she mm. said it had come after her divorce and she had thought to herself she's happy to have moved on but in that moment she thought who could I have been that he wouldn't have divorced me and so she made this cloning idea so this high concept big hooks that are still traditionally feminine what they used to call small stories right about life or women's fiction like speculative women's fiction i'll read it all day and all night i just added this book and i was like oh my god i need to read this book when i was after una i started like six different books and wrote pieces to varying degrees and i'd always kind of hit a wall and one of the stories was like a clone story but much more in the vein of never let me go than in the vein of whatever action even orphan black which i thought was fantastic but is much more plot action oriented and i was just like you know what i don't have a way in yet like the same way with time travel i never imagined i would approach it and write a time travel story unless i had that point of view or like what is the time travel story that i want what ideas can i play around with using that as a construct and so for cloning i think that's brilliant it it makes me think like all right you know what let's think about down the line the questions that were coming up from the audience there is an appetite for cloning and gillian flynn even said i didn't know this was like a thing that people were interested in and there is an appetite for that yes well those are such good recommendations thank you so the last thing you got to do is just tell everyone where they can find you twitter instagram whatever everything is linked on my website montemore.com and my facebook page is margarita montemore all of my other social media like twitter and instagram is Damiella, that's D-A-M-I-E-L-L-A. That's my handle that I've had since I was like 18 years old. I'm lucky that I didn't pick something really goofy like Sparkly Socks 77. (laughs) You know, something that's kind of esoteric enough that it stood the test of time. But it's still the handle I will grab as soon as a new social media site comes out and I need to reserve a name. So yeah, that's where you can find me. This has been so much fun. Such a pleasure. Thank you again for having me. And I can't wait to see what other fantastic female characters you explore. Well, you've given us quite a few to think about. Yes. And Una Out of Order is out now in paperback. So if anyone hasn't read it yet, I don't know what they've been doing, but now is your chance. Before it comes to Amazon. Thank you again. It's a pleasure. Take care, everybody. We want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash popfictionwomen. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. 
Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore Women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.